This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. Uh, I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this week is an interview with uh, Chris Putnam Walkley. Uh, Chris is a well known global philanthropy advisor, uh, and she's the author of a new book called Delusional Altruism, which we're talking about in the podcast. Um, so yeah, Chris and I had a good wide-ranging chat about the book and also sort of inevitably about what's going on at the moment in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that's affecting philanthropy and philanthropy's response to it. Um, so we talked about kind of what the book was about and, and her sort of thesis that there are a number of different kind of delusions or mistaken beliefs that hold a lot of donors and funders back from being as effective as they could. Um, so we talked about the the fact that a lot of philanthropy is done with a with a scarcity mindset rather than abundance mindset and sort of you know donors trying to save money on the wrong things and how that kind of plays into a desire to to retain control after grants are made how it kind of plays into some of the wider concerns about things like the the overhead myth where people are unwilling to fund infrastructure or, or sort of necessary um, core costs for organizations that are perceived as that and um, we talked a bit about you know some of the interesting signs about whether that's changing um, and that funder behavior is changing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of whether that might continue uh, after after the uh, current crisis is over we talked uh, quite a bit about what failure might mean in in philanthropy and kind of how donors could understand that in relation to risk and how that sort of played into the way in which philanthropy's done and you know the the way in which um philanthropists take an acceptable amount of risk and therefore sort of demonstrate the the unique ability of, of philanthropy to to kind of uh, bring unpopular issues to light or sort of push things forward and drive innovation um, we talked about uh, something in the book that's uh, that's about the kind of the way in which a lot of donors don't necessarily think about funding advocacy or sort of public policy work and focus instead on direct service provision and why that might be um, we talked quite a bit about um uh, how um, how the response of philanthropy to the COVID nineteen pandemic so far might be perceived, um, and whether you know it would generally sort of result in people looking more favourably on philanthropy, or whether philanthropy would be seen to have not responded, you know, to quite the scale or in the way that it could have done. And we also talked about the challenges um, the current situation presents, particularly in balancing the sort of short term necessity of getting money out right now against the kind of uh, the role that philanthropy can play in the longer term in sort of funding things and particularly in that process of rebuilding that might follow the the current crisis and um, so without further ado let's go into the the conversation um, I will be back at the end of the podcast just for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up so uh, see you in a bit okay great so I'm here with Chris Putnam Walkley hi Chris Hi, Rodri. 
Uh, great to have you on the podcast. Um, so Chris is a uh, renowned global philanthropy advisor and uh, the author of a new book called Delusional Altruism, um, which I've had a chance to, to have a look through an advanced copy of and is a really interesting book. Um, so maybe the best place to, to start the conversation is if you, you know, tell us a bit in your own words about what the book's about, um, you know, what this intriguing title of Delusional Altruism means and kind of what prompted you to, to write it. Sure. Well, I've been advising philanthropists of all sizes and types for the past 20 years. And in observing them and their efforts, I came to recognize that, you know, for the most part, the vast majority are genuinely wanting to make a difference and have a meaningful impact and change the world in important ways, but often we're getting in their own way uh, and had sort of misguided thoughts, illogical ideas um, that were holding them back. And it was preventing them from having the impact that they sought. And often they weren't even aware of this, this challenge. And so that's where the delusional altruism comes from, is sort of these illusions uh, that we, um, we create for ourselves that restrain ourselves as funders and how it prevents us from being altruistic. So I, I really wanted to write a book that would help funders recognize this, uh, see how it manifests in their own giving, and then identify ways that they can have a more transformational impact on the issues and causes they care about, in part by transforming how they give. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what are some of those um, you know, issues that you've picked up on in terms of the delusions they have? Because I know in the book you talk about uh, you know, a whole, uh, you kind of outline a typology of, of things that you've seen that, that are specific and kind of you see quite often uh, that donors have in their minds that, that might be causing them to be less effective than they might otherwise be. Yeah. So in the book, I outlined seven of them. Um, so here's a few. One is having a scarcity mindset. Um, and this, I think, is surprising to many people because philanthropists, of course, if they have nothing else, they often have access to wealth, either their own wealth um, or someone else's wealth if they're, you know, the professional staff of a foundation, for example. But too often, um, funders have a scarcity mindset, and this manifests itself in a variety of ways, uh, really just kind of a belief that um, the, the, surprisingly, the more that they give to support the causes they care about, the less they should be investing in themselves, and that, therefore the more impact that they'll have. And this is misguided, I think, because I believe to be the best philanthropist, um, to have the greatest impact, you really need to become the best philanthropist you can be. And by that, I mean investing in yourself as a funder, investing in your own learning, building trusting relationships with your grantees, um, and believing that um, you need to create effectiveness for yourself as a funder in order to have the greatest impact on the issues you care about. And you also really need to invest in the nonprofits that you are trying to support. Um, and so by that, I mean things like talent development, certainly invest, investments in technology, <clears throat> excuse me, which we're certainly seeing now during this pandemic about the importance of investing in technology and being able to be agile and adaptive to what's happening around us. Um, but too often, I think funders hamstring themselves and hamstring their grantees and really, what this does is it prevents effectiveness. Um, I think a, a scarcity mindset also manifests itself in things like not trusting yourself or limiting yourself based on your current capacity. 
or believing that you're too small to make a difference. And so I think funders often hold themselves back. They say, well, I'm too small, I can't really have an impact rather than thinking with an abundance mindset that would say, well, maybe I only have this much money to give, but I bet I could partner with others and collaborate and leverage to make a difference. Or, um, you know, often donors will, you know, not trust themselves to make decisions. And so what they'll do instead is they'll wrap themselves up in data, you know, they'll invest in endless data gathering and then become so overwhelmed with the information they've gathered that they can't actually make a decision. And so um, to me, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's one of the, the biggest delusions that funders face. And I think one of the ones that holds them back the most. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of a really interesting stuff to pick up on there. I mean, what you were saying up front about this sort of un, lack, lack of willingness to to invest in in your own capacity building and your own skills as a philanthropist, but also in the organisations you're funded, I think, you know, will really resonate with a lot of people listening. I'm, I know it's a big conversation in the US, and it certainly is over here at the moment about um the the fact that donors are and you know and by that I mean individual donors and and kind of grant makers are have traditionally been quite unwilling to fund infrastructure or things that are sort of perceived as as infrastructure and a sort of belief that you can get all the money to the front line without paying for that. Do I mean why do you think that that kind of overhead myth or the idea that that all of this this infrastructure is sort of wasted uh, overhead has become so prevalent and and kind of you know how how do we effectively challenge it yeah that's a great question um it is it is a big question you know i think a lot of it has to do with fear and i think it's fear of losing control and a lot of times funders place extensive restrictions on on grants in terms of you know from the from the ask all the way to the reporting right so the lengthy application processes you know, the excessive information that is required and requested of grantees that often isn't even reviewed or used for funding decisions to, you know, tight restrictions on exactly how the money can be used, how it can't be used, and then extensive reporting um, requirements, which again, aren't often read ever <laughs> by funders. Um, and so to me, it's a, it's a fear of losing control and somehow this belief that if you add all these restrictions that you as the funder maintain more control, but it's really misguided because what it's really doing is preventing the nonprofit from being able to be effective. So for example, um, you know, there's, there's a lack of overhead. There's also the lack of willingness to support multi-year grants. And you, know, you think that if you dole out the money once a year and every year you're making a funding decision, even if it's a three-year project, there's some kind of belief that you're being a good steward of the money and maintaining control. And really all you're doing is preventing the nonprofit from being effective because without the confidence of knowing that they have funding for you know three to five years, which isn't even a long period of time anyway, it's hard for them to make critical decisions like hiring. Um, they might not be willing or able to hire the right people because those people aren't willing to come work for them for a one-year gig. And so they end up having less qualified talent doing the important work that the funder wants to have happen. And so again, it's, I don't think donors realize um, the harm they're really causing the nonprofits. And certainly, um, you know, the lack of overhead, I think is, I think it's fascinating, really, because, you know, I think about a lot of donors who uh, accumulated their wealth through business, and certainly in their businesses, 
they would invest in themselves. They knew it was important to have the lights on and electricity and research and development and technology and infrastructure. And it's, it's somehow when it comes to philanthropy, um, kind of those smarts that help them create the wealth don't always apply to their charitable giving. And I think it's quite misguided. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it never ceases to amaze me that, as you say, the, the idea that people in all other walks of life can accept that it's necessary to pay for this kind of stuff. And then it comes to philanthropy and all of a sudden it seems, seems like it's kind of wasted overhead. Um, I mean, one thing I wanted to ask, actually, I think that in terms of some of what you were saying there about kind of multi, multi-year grants and kind of having you know unrestricted funding rather than program specific funding. Uh, here in the UK, I've seen some quite interesting examples, particularly of, of sort of foundation grant makers, maybe rather than individual philanthropists, shifting what they do quite a lot in response to, to the COVID pandemic and sort of actually shifting programmatic funding towards unrestricted and, and moving much more towards a kind of trust-based relationship with the organizations they're funding. Do you get any sense of of that in the US? And do you think that's something that might result in, in kind of longer term changes or will people just go back to how they were doing things before? Yeah, that's a great observation. And I think, I mean, here in the US, uh, I've been stunned by the extent to which funders within days dropped restrictions removed even application requirements, reporting requirements, um, uh, told nonprofit partners that, you know, whatever their existing grant was, they could just convert it to an unrestricted grant. And with clear messages of, we trust you, uh, nonprofit leader, to (laughs) use the money as best you see fit during this time. Um, you know, I've seen funders say even, you know, don't worry about the, the final report, like whenever this whole thing is over, we'll call you and like we'll take notes and write down what you did for you so you don't have to. It's been amazing to me. I mean, I think, you know, th- these tightly held restrictions, which, again, this is part of delusional altruism. You know, there's really very little accountability in philanthropy. Certainly every country is different with, with its tax systems and regulations, but a lot of the restrictions that funders have, they put on themselves. You know, it's the things like um, we only make grants three times a year and the board has to be present in order to do that. Or, you know, these application processes, or we only fund, you know, no more than 10% overhead, or, um, you know, we only select, you know, we don't accept unsolicited proposals or, you know, whatever the restrictions are, for the most part, they're self-created, right? They could all go away. And I think funders forget that sometimes. I mean, literally feel like they have to follow these rules that were created often years or decades ago that no longer serve them. And so to me, what's it has been amazing watching um, many funders change their behavior. I mean, it's unfortunate it took a major global crisis to do it, but I think it's great that it's happening. And I do believe, um, I think there will be some adjustment back, but I think for a large part, these new, what I call them new best practices are going to stick, um, which I'm really excited about. And one of the things I'm encouraging funders to do right now is to really think about, you know, what changes you've made to how you give since this pandemic started. Um, and think about it now, think about it six months from now. And what worked well? You know, was it okay? Did the, did the world not end when you um, removed restrictions on your grants? and told your grantees you would trust them. Um, was it okay not you know, to be able to give a grant without forcing them to follow your strict application procedures? 
you know, what have you learned about how you give as a result of this pandemic that, that, would, that turned out to be helpful, easier, um, easier on everybody, less expensive really on the, on the funder and um, beneficial for increasing impact and, and what can you keep going forward? Because, you know, this crisis is not gonna last forever. We don't know how long it's gonna last, but there will be a period of recovery. Um, and I think it's important to reflect on, you know, what worked well, what didn't work well, and also, you know, what systems and processes and infrastructure did you wish you had in place as a funder before this happened that would have benefited you? Um, and how can you put some of those in place today? Yeah, I think, I mean, absolutely. I think some of that period of of self-reflection and kind of working out what are the things that we might want to, that have been imposed by necessity in the short term that we might want to keep in the longer term and which are those where we think actually now we really kind of realize the value of those things now that we can't do them is, is a really important process and i hope lots of donors and funders are are giving some some headspace to that um one one thing i want to ask about you were mentioning before in terms of the problems around um the ways in which some grant making and, and sort of funding practices operated often seem to be to do with kind of power and control and and you know we were talking about how that might have shifted in the short term just as a response to to the severe need at the moment in the nonprofit world um have you seen any donors, you know, or, or organizations that you work with taking things that step further and kind of going beyond the the power dynamic between the funder and kind of grantee organizations and thinking even more about kind of end beneficiaries and communities? And I'm thinking here about some of the, the interesting stuff that was already being done around participatory grant making and whether whether this has accelerated any of that thinking at all. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I do see pre-pandemic, pre-crisis, um, there has been a lot of increase, I believe, among funders of, of really of all types and sizes um, to recognize, you know, quite frankly, that um, A, you know, nonprofits are the ones that are helping the foundations achieve their mission. You know, it's not the nonprofit, uh, it's not, excuse me, it's not the foundation or the funder that's the one doing the work, right? They're funding the work. It's really the nonprofit that's doing the work. Um, the funder is funding them. And therefore the, you know, the, the nonprofit is a critical partner in helping the funder achieve their mission. And so I think a there's more of a recognition of that, of the non-governmental organization as a partner, um, but also recognizing that, you know, the funder, while brilliant as they might be, right? Knowledgeable, super smart, connected, lots to offer besides money, certainly doesn't have all the answers. And the people who are most impacted by whatever issue it is, certainly are the ones most well positioned to provide guidance and information and insight as to what they need and what would be helpful uh, and what role they can play. And so I think there's been a lot of um, examples of funders that are willing to um, seed decision-making and control to um, not just nonprofits, but community uh, residents, people impacted by these issues. And, you know, this manifests itself differently. You know, in some cases, it's more of a advisory capacity where, you know, as funders are making decisions about what issues to focus on or their strategies or the right interventions to support, they're engaging different perspectives and voices um, to help inform their thinking, but ultimately still it's the funder's decision. And if you think of a continuum, kind of all the way that's on one end and the other end is truly handing over decision-making um, 
there's one foundation that I cite in the book that um, has created, it started out by creating some uh, kind of community advisory groups to advise on their grant making. And it was so effective. They said, hey, we'll just let you decide. Like, well, you know, here's the amount of money and you all decide which organizations to support and how to allocate the funds and, you know, we'll approve it. And so I, I think there's a lot of options there. I haven't, I don't know that I've seen anything really change during the crisis. Um, I mean, the first, what are we at now? Eight weeks, um, uh, for, at least for the U.S. and perhaps for the for Europe. Um, in terms of in terms of engaging people, community members, and making funding decisions, there's certainly been a lot of developments of crisis response funds that have been collaborative efforts between various funders and nonprofit organizations in allocating funding. And there's certainly been a lot more, I think, trust of nonprofit leaders to make the right decisions, which I think is huge. Um, so those are the, some of the observations I've had. Yeah, it's in- interesting. And you're right. I mean, perhaps it, you know, the folks at the moment has naturally been on altering those existing relationships with uh, grantees that, that were already in place. And actually, if most organizations weren't adopting a kind of fully participatory model, then expecting them to sort of shift to that in the space of eight weeks might be unrealistic. But I guess, I guess it'll be interesting in the medium to longer term uh, as they perhaps, you know, uh, start to think more about shifting power as well as financial resources, whether some of them take it that that step further. Um, one thing I, I wanted to pick up on there, actually, around you sort of we were talking before about how you know some of this is around um, the the desire on the part of donors to retain an element of of control over over what is done with the money, and this links to one of the other points I think you raise you know quite a few times in the book, which is about the the fear of failure that a lot of donors have, and and maybe that impacting what how they perceive risk and their kind of tolerance for it what's your take on sort of how how failure is defined in philanthropy and maybe how we can kind of change people's thinking on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, it's, what's interesting to me is there's certainly a lot of fear right now um, with, during this pandemic and global recession. Um, but fear was a prevalent problem in philanthropy before, before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Um, and fear manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And I think it really does hold funders back, um, surprisingly. And yeah, fear of failure is certainly one of them. I think there's, you know, the sense of, you know, what if we launch this new initiative and it's a flop? Or what if we try a new innovative approach and it doesn't work? Or what if we, um, you know, support this uh, nascent uh, nonprofit leader and, you know, he absconds with the money and we appear on the front page of the paper in unflattering ways. Um, there's all these sort of aspects of failure um, that funders fear. But I think what's interesting is, you know, funders really are in the, some of the best positioned people and entities in the world to take risks. Um, and often a huge uh, advantage of philanthropic dollars is um, to be that kind of first money in to pilot and try and test things to innovate um, and, you know, I think it's a, on one hand, I think it's an advantage that philanthropists don't take enough of, uh, to take that risk and see what happens and to be able to openly share, you know, here's what we tried, here's what worked, here's what didn't work, here's what we learned, here's what we're going to do differently so that others can learn from that experience. Um, 
On the flip side though, um, just, I certainly encourage philanthropists to take risks, but I also think it's important to take prudent risk um, because not every risk is worth taking. And um, kind of at the opposite extreme, I think a lot of funders will kind of jump on new ideas, new bandwagons, new, uh, as we say, you know, chasing shiny squirrels um, and uh, without really thinking them through and not assessing the risk in terms of cost and benefit. Does it fit with their existing strategy or will it take them off course? What's the cost in terms of actual investment in this and do we have that? Um, and you know, does this really warrant pursuing? And so I do think it's important for funders to reflect on um, assessing what the risk is and taking risk when it's prudent. But I think oftentimes, you know, there's a lot more opportunity to take risks than funders realize. Yeah, I know that's yeah that bit in the, the book I think is really interesting because I guess you know making the point that risk for risk's sake is not not what's being suggested here and actually you know across the spectrum of philanthropic funding you know, not all of it needs to just be kind of high-end philanthropic risk capital. Um, actually, you know, there's there's a lot of space for funding existing programs and all that sort of stuff, but where, where there are opportunities to take risk and it couldn't be funded otherwise, that's where the sort of the unique power of philanthropy maybe maybe shines through. Um, linked to that, actually, one of the things you, you touch on in the book, which, I you know, is particularly interesting to me because I kind of come from a policy perspective at all this stuff, is you you make a point with, with about the way in which some donors kind of think about um, how they can approach their funding and what are the options available to them, that too many often sort of start from the mindset of it has to be funding, you know, a direct program or service and, and entirely rule out the idea of kind of advocacy or policy influence as a way of achieving the same ends. Um, why, why do you think the, there is this blind spot and kind of what, what's your argument to donors about why they might want to expand their thinking on that? Yeah, I think honestly, it's pretty simple. I think it's just, it's easier to get your head around helping, you know, children with summer camp than it is to think about systems change and policy change. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people naturally, you know, all of us tend to want to, you know, help people and like be able to sort of see how your funding made their lives better like that month. And so, you know, those kinds of projects, A, I mean, they're very important, you know, finding, providing healthcare or domestic violence support services or substance abuse treatment or whatever it might be, right? Very important um, and worthy of funding. But it's easier, I think, for anyone to get their head around how the impact that you're having when you see it more directly on people's lives or on, you know, animals or the environment or whatever issue you might be focused on. Um, whereas I think systems change and policy advocacy and sort of the building of movements, if you will, they're harder to understand. Um, it's harder to know as a funder where you can make a difference. Uh, it takes longer, longer term investment to often to, to see the impact. And certainly, you know, you could invest a lot of money and not realize the changes you want to create in terms of, let's say, policy advocacy at a state or federal level or local level. Um, so I think it also takes a lot more um, persistence among funders who often want to see results quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's just less awareness and understanding of um, of how it works and kind of the influence that funders can have. But gosh, I mean, certainly 
if this pandemic shows us anything, I should hope it would be the importance of investing in systems and, and flawed healthcare systems, flawed public health systems, the importance of investing in, um, you know, sustainable food supply chains. I mean, you know, you could go on and on. And so I, I hope, um, you know, what will become very obvious to all philanthropists and all funders is the flaws in our systems, how they are negatively um, and disproportionately impacting low-income people, people of color, uh, people in marginalized communities around the world, and uh, and hopefully the recovery and reform from these crises will um, include some very serious systems change and investments, so that you know, um, you know, the point is to to strengthen all of us and strengthen our communities and strengthen our healthcare systems so that we can be resilient, you know, all of the time that we can quickly bounce back and, and that we, we don't have to hit such dire situations and then pour in so much money to fix the problems. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously not a very good use of use of funds. And so hopefully um, I think this crisis will help us realize the importance of funding systems change. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would, you know, echo echo that that hope. Um, it, it's it brings me to to thinking about something actually. One of the, I mean, there's been a lot of kind of critique, uh, of, you know, probably even criticism of philanthropy from various angles over over the last few years, and quite a lot of sort of high profile books and things. And and one of them that feels relevant to that is the the criticism that you know philanthropy is only ever a limited tool to address the failings of existing systems because it's it's sort of a reflection of those systems it's wealth that was created as a result of existing inequality and and structural problems so you know the extent to which it can be used as a tool to address those i guess some would would question now i certainly know from donors and funders i've talked to that many of them kind of are aware of those challenges and grapple with them on an almost daily basis is is that something you see in the the donors that you work with that they're sort of if they are thinking about using their philanthropy more to address structural reform that they recognize that that's that's quite you know that takes that's quite difficult for for philanthropy to do and actually takes a lot of thought to achieve yeah i mean my belief and position is um you know here we are <laughs> and um it's very important to recognize um how we got here and the um inequities and inequalities um, in terms of wealth creation and the um, very serious and urgent um, centuries-long problems that have been created. Um, but uh, it's important for funders to recognize and understand that. I mean, for sort of in general, like sort of field-wide, as well as for particular funders, if you're a corporation or you're a, you know, family foundation that's been around for a century and really recognizing and owning how your wealth was created and on whose backs and, you know, what was the cost of that? And then um, figuring out how you can uh, use the resources that you have, certainly in partnership with others to create change. Um, I mean, I, I feel it's incumbent upon funders to do that. And you know, and, and here we are. And so let's make the best use of these dollars now to create these changes. And certainly, I mean, philanthropic dollars are limited. You know, if you add them all up, whatever the number is, it's, it's a limited number, uh, the amount of, of funding. 
um, and it, it pales in comparison to public dollars. But why not use it for good? You know, why not use it to help, um, you know, understand or uncover uh, flaws in systems or um, disaggregate data so we can really understand um, how certain populations are more negatively impacted by an issue than we realize and what we can do to help them or to, um, I mean, you know, look at a very simple example in the US. Um, it was a philanthropist who discovered that painting white lines here in the US, maybe it's different in, in the UK, um, but white lines on the side of the highway um, would prevent car accidents. So there was lots of car accidents. There was a particular funder who was an engineer and, and in the transportation industry and recognized this. And so he used his philanthropic dollars to conduct experiments uh, with the permission, of course, of his state uh, transportation system and uh, painted white lines on the side of the road as opposed to only having lines in the middle of the road. Because if they're in the middle of the road, people naturally at night would kind of look to the middle and then they'd kind of veer into the opposite side of traffic and, and get hit and killed. And so he created, you know, white lines on the side of the road and people's eyeballs naturally went off to the side uh, to keep them uh, straight on, on on the road and it reduced traffic deaths. And so now that's part of, you know, the U.S. highway system, right? That's uh, part of the, the system. And so I think, you know, that's a very small example, but, and it was, you know, relatively small amount of money given the amount of lives that have been saved over the past, I don't know, 50 years <laughs> since this happened. Um, and so, you know, Philanthropists, even with a smaller amount of money, I think can can instigate and ignite tremendous change. Yeah, I, I know absolutely, and obviously, I you know I, I remain positive about about philanthropy's role. And again, it's you know large, for that reason, you can always you know there there are challenges and and trying to you know help philanthropy to be the best version of itself. I think is something we should all aspire to. But there certainly you know seems to me a very clear way in which it could play a unique role that can't necessarily be fulfilled by the state or the market and when you see those examples it's very sort of clear what that that value is um one of one of the things actually that sort of as well as the ability to think differently and potentially kind of try try you know take risks as we were talking about earlier that it seems to me philanthropy can bring to the table um is the ability to sort of take a longer term view of issues and stick with them and um, particularly i think as political and market cycles have got shorter and shorter that seems like a real strength particularly of sort of endowed models of philanthropy i guess what, what i want to ask is it's it's an interesting time to be thinking about that strength because a lot of the what's going on around the kind of covid19 pandemic is putting much more emphasis on the short-term response and there's a lot of pressure on donors to do something now and on you know foundations to to spend into their endowments which i think you know there's there's a perfectly there's a valid debate to be had there about that but i guess the flip side is what about the role of philanthropy in the re the process of rebuilding and sort of making the most of that longer term strength? I mean, is that a debate that you see sort of happening at the moment? And what's what's your take on it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think one of the mistakes that philanthropists make in a crisis or disaster of any kind, if it's a flood or earthquake um, or a pandemic, is focusing on the immediate crisis and the crisis response, because, you know, certainly it's, ur there's an urgency, there's immediate devastation, and everyone rushes to help, which of course is important and necessary. And then often 
we forget that um, you know there's a, there's multiple stages of any disaster. So there's the immediate response, there's recovery and reform, and ultimately building the resilience of you know communities and institutions um, to withstand these kinds of things. And there's important need for funding at all of those stages. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think exactly what you said, philanthropists have an ability to have more of a bird's eye view, uh, can, can look more long-term, whereas politicians um, and companies are more focused on you know, quarterly bottom earnings and uh, election cycles. So I think it's hugely important, um, but you know, certainly this crisis is, is unique in that you know, it's impacting everybody. Um, and so I think part of the crisis response is that, you know, philanthropists, you know, everyone is, is feeling this pandemic. If it's because you're in lockdown, if it's because you're fearful, if it's because you're ill, uh, if it's because you've lost, you know, resources in the recession, um, you know, people who are hurting, whatever it is. Uh, this is impacting all of us. And so I think we're all keenly aware of the, of the need to respond. And I, I think that I mean, we have no idea how long the recover, how long this crisis will last or how long or when the recovery will start. But uh, I think we're all recognizing too that we need to be in this for the long haul and that things could continue to change. So yeah, I mean, here I see in the US, I do see funders who are kind of debating, do we spend our entire year grant budget now? like <laughs> when there's still six months left in the year or do we wait? And, you know, I think it's different for every funder and depending on the issue that they're funding, I know a lot of um, funders who are supporting local arts organizations, nonprofit, non-governmental arts organizations have chosen to, you know, fund them now, like basically use up all their grant dollars for the year because if they don't, there might not the arts organizations left at the end of this, they might just go under. And so the belief is let's keep them going and try to sustain them uh, into the recovery period. But it, it certainly differs, differs for every funder. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it brings me on to a sort of broader question I wanted to ask, which I, I guess ties together quite a few of the things we've, we've talked about, which, you know, inevitably uh, touch on the COVID-19 pandemic. But, but what, you know, what do you think the perception overall so far is of how philanthropy has responded to it and and do you think it will kind of result in a, a shift towards a more sort of positive narrative about philanthropy or that some of the criticism will die down do you, do you think philanthropy will be seen to have responded well to the pandemic you know i do i'm, I'm balanced i think yes i think um people will recognize you know i think some pretty significant efforts on the part of funders as i mentioned before the vast you know I guess I shouldn't say vast majority, but many who have, um, you know, removed restrictions, offered additional funding. I mean, um, one funder in New York State, um, the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, for example, just gave all of their grantees an extra year of funding just without asking, just said, here, don't worry about it. You don't need to apply. You know, here's an extra year. So there's lots of examples um, of funders doing that. There's been pledges that have had hundreds and hundreds of funders signing them, uh, pledging to be more um, trusting and removing restrictions and increasing core operating support to uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, a lot of collaboration, rapid collaboration. Um, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation is just one example. 
Um, and a lot of community foundations, I'm sure around the world are, are engaging in this where they're kind of the seen as a major convener in their region and pulling together, you know, new partnerships um, quick, rapidly, like within the afternoon <laughs> to, to respond to what's happening um, and using their expertise and awareness of, of the local nonprofit uh, community and, and community needs um, and bringing those partnerships together. So I, th I think there'll be a recognition of philanthropy being able to move quickly and, and give differently. Um, and, you know, I think when this shakes out, you know, we'll also see a lot of funders. I mean, there's for all the funders that are doing all these great things, there are a lot who are in hiding. <laughs> there's a lot who are waiting and seeing. Um, you know, there's a lot of billionaires who have pledged much money to support this. And there's a lot of billionaires who no one's heard from <laughs> during this time. Um, and, and there are a lot of funders who I think are overwhelmed and fearful and unsure what to do and are waiting and seeing their responses will kind of, we'll wait till this whole thing shakes out and then we'll reconvene. And I, I think that's problematic, but those aren't the ones that are in the newspapers, right? Cause those are the ones that are hiding under the covers. Um, I spoke to one foundation CEO shortly after um, we in the US started going into lockdown and uh, asked how he was, their foundation was responding. And he said two things, which I found startling. One was uh, they had, um, their strategic plan was expiring and they were, had wanted to create a new one, um, but they were gonna postpone that until you know six months later. They weren't, um, and the, the board had decided to basically wait until their, their next board strategic retreat was planned, like in six months before deciding how as an organization they wanted to respond. And during that time, uh, there was gonna be a major turnover in the board of directors. So outgoing members were gonna be leaving and new board members were coming on and, and the old guard, if you will, felt like, oh, well, we should bring in these new people and let them lead the way, which, you know, doesn't really, make a lot of sense because you're bringing on new people who aren't familiar with the foundation or necessarily with philanthropy to make major decisions about how the foundation should respond and its strategy. And to me, that was just very disappointing, um, but in some ways not surprising because, you know, um, I mean, a criticism of philanthropy is that there's not a lot of accountability and they don't have to act, right? They don't have to move quickly. Uh, they don't have to revamp their strategy quickly. And, you know, some funders are, I think, heroically leading the way and some are holding back. Yeah, absolutely. I think I know it's a very balanced take. And I guess, um, you know, the the fact that there there are examples of absolutely incredible things going on and philanthropy doing it, you know, absolutely at its best, sort of responding quickly and and flexibly where perhaps, you know, governments in many places aren't is balanced out by the fact there are plenty of donors not give or potential donors not giving and also those who are in the philanthropy world who are as you say kind of slightly paralyzed by not knowing what to do i guess i guess that's a sort of reflection of the fact that philanthropy is a very varied landscape and sometimes that's a frustrating thing um 
Um, I just, just, I'm aware that I'm in danger of uh, sort of keeping you for too long here. Um, I just wanted to ask before you go, kind of whether there's anything particular you wanted to sort of flag up that you've got coming up, and obviously the book is coming out. When, when is the book out, by the way, and and where can people get hold of a copy? Oh, thank you. The book, the book is out. It was just published at the end of March. Um, I wouldn't recommend publishing a book during the greatest global <laughs> crisis in a century. <laughs> However, um, it is actually stunning to me how relevant it is for philanthropy to respond to this crisis. I mean, just one example is, um, you know, I believe that any strategy that existed before before this crisis can't possibly um, continue as is post-crisis. And so I think now is the time, and I write about the importance of rapid strategy formulation and implementation in the book. Um, now is the time for funders to pull out their strategic plans, take a look at them, in some cases dust them off, and say, you know, what needs to what needs to adapt, what stays the same, what should be abandoned, and what should be radically changed, uh, and and quickly make those changes. It doesn't have to take you know six months to a year to formulate your strategy. It honestly can take six to seven hours. And that's, I think, something really important for funders to do because strategy is really a framework for making decisions. And right now we wanna be making the best decisions uh, and thinking about you know, who do we wanna be in a year? What do we wanna accomplish in the next year? What kind of impact do we wanna have? Where are we today? And what are the you know, major two to three things we need to do to get from where we are today to where we wanna be? And you know, how can we have create a, quickly create a framework that allows us to make the right decisions and make the right choices with how we allocate our resources and our time. So yeah, so I, the book uh, to me is quite relevant for funders and I would encourage, of course, all of your listeners to purchase a copy. It's available on Amazon. Um, it is available on Amazon in the UK, I do know, because um, I just ordered one for a, um, somebody there. And uh, it's available on Barnes and Noble and uh, Books A Million. Great. Oh, well, I'll make sure I put links in the, the show notes. To that. I think since I was uh, sent very kindly in advance uh, copy of the proofs, I assumed I assumed maybe it wasn't ready, but it's great to know that people can actually go and take a, an action directly after listening to this. Um, anyway, it just remains to say thanks ever so much for, for finding the time to come on the podcast, Chris. It's been a pleasure having a chance to, to talk to you. Um, and perhaps, you know, at some point um, in a year or two's time, we can catch up and, and see how some of the, the, uh, the aftermath of uh, this pandemic has kind of panned out as we as we get out the other side hopefully that would be great i'd enjoy that okay great well my thanks again to chris for finding the time to come on the podcast um it was great to have a chat to her i'll put links in the show notes to um lots of the things that we discussed and certainly to uh, where you can get hold of a copy of chris's book um, which is yeah definitely worth a read. Um, I've certainly uh, had a look at it. Uh, I have to say in sort of skim form uh, in the run up to to talking to Chris. But um, yeah, it was a really interesting read, kind of outlining a lot of the sort of questions that we were talking about today, as you might imagine. So so I definitely recommend going away and seeking out a copy of that. Um, if you're interested in philanthropy and civil society issues more broadly, uh, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, why not follow me on Twitter at Rodri uh, underscore H underscore Davis? Or if you like the stuff that's more about sort of philanthropy, history and academic stuff, uh, at Philiteracy. Um, if you've got any ideas for other people we could talk to on the podcast or other topics we could cover, uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. 
Other than that, just like, subscribe, uh, leave a nice review wherever you get your podcasts, tell all your friends to come on down and try it out, uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye!